move safely and well uh, here to join us in Flagstaff from northern Florida. If you want to contribute to blessing them in that move, you can either write a check with and in the memo write Andy, new pastor, something like that. And you can put it in the, either the offering boxes outside of either door or you can go online, click the drop down menu from our website and navigate towards giving directly to that fund. It's open for one more week. So if, if you want to help out there, that would be wonderful. Well, church, we are in the Gospel of John. We're continuing to follow Jesus together as a church family in the Gospel of John. That's the, the name of this series as we are likening ourselves to being those disciples on the pages of the Bible following Jesus. And uh, in one sense, this morning is part three of John chapter 10. We've been working through it section by section. And we will, Lord willing, close out the chapter this morning. But the subtitle for taking notes is this. Jesus and the Father are one. Jesus and the Father are one. So if you would, join me at verse 22. I'm going to read all the way down to verse 42. So that we have the context of what Jesus is saying. And our attention this morning, we will hyper-focus on verse 30. And we will also do the same of verse 33. You'll see that in a few moments when we get to it. For now, join me in John 10, verse 22. Down to the end of the chapter. Scripture reads, At that time, the Feast of Dedication took place at Jerusalem. It was winter, and Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you're the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me, but you do not believe Because you are not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of my father's hand. I and the father are one. The Jews picked up stones again to stone him. And Jesus answered them, I have shown you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you going to stone me? And the Jews answered him, It is not for a good work that we're going to stone you, but for blasphemy. Because you, being a man, make yourself God. When Jesus answered them, Is it not written in your law, I said, You are gods? If he called them gods, to whom the word of God came... And scripture cannot be broken. Do you say of him whom the father consecrated and sent into the world, you're blaspheming? Because I said, I am the son of God. If I am not doing the works of my father, then do not believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works. That you may know and understand that the father is in me and I am in the father. Again, they sought to arrest him. But he escaped from their hands. Jesus went away again across the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing at first. And there he remained 
And many came to him. And they said, John did no sign. But everything that John said about this man was true. And many believed in Jesus there. This is God's word. Let's look to him together in prayer. Lord, your, your word is, is infinite riches. If we could take a shovel and spade and begin to dig on even a single word, we would find a mine shaft, infinite treasures of gems and jewels of how glorious you are as God. Jesus, you are the good shepherd. You call your sheep by name and the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Lord, give us, make us to be your sheep and let us believe this good news that you rescue us from your own wrath. So Lord, this morning as we look to your word, there's there's elegant things that you say that are simple in their words and very confusing to dig into. And we pray that as a as a family, as a congregation assembled to sit under your word, that you would make plain to us what it is that you're saying, and in doing so, that we would rejoice in you, O Lord, like one who finds great treasure, because you are spectacular. To that end, Lord, would you let the words of my mouth, the meditation of our hearts, be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer, and all of God's people said, Amen. I've, it's a question I've asked of us in the past, but it's, it's important to ask it again. And it's, it's an introspective question that each of us has addressed in life. And, and uh, philosophers and scientists try to address, theologians try, try to address. We all address it. The question is, who are you really? Or related to that, who are you really? What are you? Uh, we, we often will define ourselves by our relationships, father, son, wife, grandmother. We can define ourselves by, by what we have or what we do or by what we don't have or what we don't do. We can divine, define ourselves by bad choices and different circumstances and more. But all of those are just simply descriptions of features of our life. They actually don't get to the core of who or what you are. Are you just a product of blind chance? Have you evolved from lower life forms into a world that has no true meaning and you have a purposeless existence? Or, as the Bible says, are you made in the image of God? That is the correct answer. Made in the image of God... To represent and reflect him and his ways to the creation and to relate to him as sons and daughters of the king, as it were. We are image bearers of God. But you take that question and it's an important question, but there's a more important question than about you. There's a question that's more important about who you are and what you are. The more important question is, is this, who is Jesus? And more importantly, or related to who is Jesus, what is Jesus? Well, it's questions like these about Christ's identity. Here in John 10, nestled in this amazing favorite chapter of many, where Jesus is speaking of him being the good shepherd, and the good shepherd laying down his life for the sheep, as Jesus has a, 
has a verbal duel with the religious leaders, Jesus says things in response to their hatred and attempts to assassinate him. Jesus says things that are infinitely deep and marvelous in their meaning and significance. What we're going to see this morning as we go down that mind shaft is that when you listen to this sermon, you're going to need a helmet and a seatbelt because Jesus is going to take us to some magnificent places that we don't normally go. So with that, here's the outline. Number one, what does it mean when, when Jesus quotes, you are God's? Down in verses 27 to 39. Let's, we'll look at that first in his response to the Pharisees. Then we'll back up to verse 30 and ask this question. What does it mean that Jesus and the Father are one? And then our briefest and shortest point, the final one, is this. A right response and a glorious epitaph. And we'll just look at verse 41 to close out the sermon. So for the first point... As you're taking notes, what does it mean when Jesus quotes, you are gods, to these religious leaders? Let's look at verses 27 to 39 again. Listen to this argument. To back up for context, we'll start in verse 27 to get a running start. My sheep, Jesus says, hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life. They will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. And lest we misunderstand what Jesus is saying, verse 31, the Jews then picked up stones again to stone him, and Jesus answered, I have shown you many good works from the Father, for which of them works are you going to stone me? And they answered him, It's not for a work that we're going to stone you, but for blasphemy. Because you, being a man, make yourself God. Jesus answered them, Is it not written in your law, I said, you are gods? If he called them gods, to whom the word of God came, and scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him whom the Father consecrated and sent into the world, you are blaspheming? Because I said, I am the Son of God. If I'm not doing the works of my Father, then do not believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works. That you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. Again they sought to arrest him, but he escaped from their hands. Well, Uh, If you've read this before, if you read John 10 in preparation for the sermon this morning, or if you're hearing it for the first time now, we hear Jesus making an argument to the Pharisees, and his argument is pretty clear. He is making a defense of why it is biblically legitimate, it's good and right for him to call himself the Son of God, and he does so by saying, yeah, but doesn't the Old Testament... In Psalm 82, in speaking to that audience, call them gods. So why are you trying to kill me? So we hear that and we go, okay, there's the argument. But what does that mean? 
what is Jesus saying? Let me clear up at the outset. Contrary to Latter-day Saints, Jesus is not teaching that human beings are divine or become divine. Let's just clear that up right from the beginning. Or to our to, to New Agers or anybody who thinks that we have divinity within ourselves, any species of it, Jesus is not teaching that human beings are divine or become divine. But you can see how they can make that mistake. Jesus has said it. He's making an argument. You are gods. It's a grave mistake to be sure, but admittedly, this is a confusing text. What in the world is going on here? So again, the Jews have picked up stones to kill Jesus. So that helps us understand the significance of what Jesus has said. They pick up stones in verse 31. They had asked Jesus in the beginning. They surrounded him and they said, tell us plainly if you're the Christ or not. And Jesus said, I did tell you. And his response includes, I and the Father are one. This prompts the exchange. They're going to kill Jesus for saying, I and the Father are one. And this prompts this exchange where Jesus says to them, I've shown you many good works. This is verse 32. I've shown you many good works from the Father. Which, for one of those works, are you going to stone me? And then the Jews clarify in verse 33, it's because of blasphemy that we want to assassinate and kill you. Because you, being a man, make yourself God. So lest there be any ambiguity or confusion on our part, the religious leaders make clear they're seeking to kill Jesus because Jesus is claiming to be God. If you pause there for a moment, if you've ever um, shared the gospel of Jesus Christ with a friend, calling them to repent and believe that Jesus lived and died and rose in their place, a lot of times people might say, well, Jesus never claimed to be God. John chapter 10 is one of those places that he does without equivocation and clearly. So this prompting of Jesus claiming to be God leads to this confusing rebuke that Jesus gives in verse 34. Jesus answered them. He's defending himself. Is it not written in your law, Psalm 82, I said you are gods. If he, if the Lord called them gods to who the word of God came... And scripture can't be broken. It can't be tinkered with. You can't pick and choose. If scripture can't be broken, do you say of him whom the Father consecrated and sent into the world, you're blaspheming because I said, I am the Son of God? What's going on here? Jesus is citing the Greek translation of Psalm 82, verse 6. And specifically, Jesus is citing the first... um, phrase or portion of that verse his argument is straightforward psalm 82 speaking to an audience calls them gods and the scripture cannot be broken jesus says it can't be denied or pick and choose and jesus says he's the son of god so jesus's argument to the religious leaders is on what biblical basis are you picking up stones to kill me because i'm claiming to be the son of god when Psalm 82 verse 6 is in your Bible. Now this whole topic. Ends up creating the focus for a lot of people reading this passage. What does it mean when he says you're gods? And, and we're looking at that. But this can't distract from the central point of all of John 10. When he says in verse 30. I and the father are one. So we'll return back to that for our second point. 
But right now, let's answer this question. What is he saying? Well, first, if you have spent any time in your Bible, in any place, you know the singular, comprehensive, non-negotiable, clear witness of Scripture is that there is one and only one God. There's one God. For example, we can go all over the place. Uh, Go home today, pick up Isaiah, begin in verse 40, and read from 40 just on and see what happens. But Isaiah 43, verse 5. Isaiah 43, 5. Scripture reads, I am the Lord. There is no other. Besides me, there is no God. That is as clear as you can get. So, what's going on then in Psalm 82? Is this a contradiction? No. Listen to this. This is the Apostle Paul. This is from 1 Corinthians 10. This is 1 Corinthians 10, 19 and 20. So we saw in Isaiah 43, there is no other God. And if God, who knows all things and is in all places at once, knows of no other God, then there is no other God. And Paul makes clear in 1 Corinthians 10, verse 19, he's talking about idols. He says, what do I imply then, verse 19? That food offered to idols is anything or that an idol is anything? Verse 20, no. I imply that what pagans sacrifice, they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. There's a lot going on in 1 Corinthians 10, 19 to 20. But Paul just made clear that all the idols of all the world of all places, of all times, even today, right now, all idols of all places aren't idols to represent gods. They are, 100% of them, idols that represent demons. Who are the authors of false religions? So again then, if, if there is one and only one God, if there are no other gods, and what are perceived to be other gods are actually demons... Again, what is going on in Psalm 82? Now, in Psalm 82, it's unclear who God is speaking to. We know that he is speaking to uh, his people. There's three main options that exist that explain why he is using this phrase, I said you are gods. The least likely, though plausible, is that God is speaking to angels. Psalm 82 is a rebuke. It's a rebuke for mishandling and disobedience to God's word. And so it's possible that God is speaking to angels. After all, in Job chapter 1, angels are called sons of God. So so in, in that sense, Jesus is arguing from the lesser to the greater, that Psalm 82, God's talking to angels who were called sons of God and think of Hebrews 1 where Jesus was made a little bit lower than the angels but he is superior to angels that's a possibility here's another possibility is that God is speaking to Israel's judges they were the political religious leaders who were to judge the people of Israel so in this instance if God is speaking to the judges and calling them gods similar to the angels Here's the big idea. God commissions angels or he commissioned human leaders of Israel 
in positions that are like God, meaning they were given authority by God to carry out God's tasks, to speak God's word. They were God's representatives and to disobey a judge in Israel was to disobey God or to disobey a king in Israel was to disobey God. So in that sense, by analogy, they are lowercase g gods because they stand in a position of God-likeness. And so he's using an analogy because what we saw in Isaiah 43, what we saw in 1 Corinthians 10 is there aren't other gods. So the question is, as we fit scripture together, what does this mean? Here's the third option, which is the one that I take. And it's this, God is speaking in Psalm 82, a word of rebuke to the first generation of Israelites coming out of the wilderness. That whole nation was given God's word in Exodus 20 and beyond, and they forsook his word. And the reason why I think that this stands is because if we were to look at the full text of Psalm 82, 6, here's what it reads. I said, you are God's. Sons of the Most High, all of you. So is it angels, is it judges, or is it the nation of Israel? Here's why I'm going to say it's the nation of Israel. What did God say in Exodus 4.22 to Moses? You shall say to Pharaoh that thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. So Israel, the people, are considered the whole nation God's son. They were given God's word. They were supposed to, based on the Abrahamic covenant, be a blessing to all the nations of the earth. And instead, by their disobedience with God's word, as God's restored image bearers, and as God's representatives on earth, they misrepresented God by not obeying his word. And so that's why there's a rebuke. I said you are God's sons of the most high. So there's this relationship of sonship. So that's what I think is happening. Okay, but what does this mean? What this means is that Jesus is arguing with these religious leaders who are acting just like the first generation in the wilderness. They're supposed to lead the people in understanding the Lord, and instead they're leading the people away from the Lord. And he's using this analogy to say, just as the first generation were sons of God but disobeyed, just so you, but I, Jesus says, he is the true firstborn son. If you've been around here for a while, what this means is that Jesus is also the prophetic, typological fulfillment of the true Son of God. God called Israel his firstborn son. Adam was portrayed as God's firstborn son. Israel was portrayed as God's firstborn son. David was portrayed as God's firstborn son. Here is Jesus, God's eternally begotten son made flesh. But whatever position one holds, whether it's angels, judges, or the people of Israel, though Jesus' point still stands. I love how D.A. Carson sums up this dispute. In his commentary, he writes, Jesus recognizes the hostility of his opponents has not been thought through. That's, you should just think about that for a moment, our day and age. The hostility of his opponents has not been thought through. In the heat of their opposition to Jesus, what they hear Jesus to be saying, they are partly right. Because Jesus does make himself equal with God. But they are partly wrong 
This fact does not establish Jesus as a competing or separate God. Wait for the second point. And they're profoundly mistaken. They have not grasped the trajectory of their own scripture to see how Jesus fulfills the scriptures. Nor have they known God well enough to perceive that the revelation Jesus is and brings is in continuity with and the capstone of the revelation God has already provided. So in this first point, what does Jesus mean when he quotes, you are God's? He's arguing from the Old Testament into the New to prove his own deity as the eternally begotten Son of God and the mysterious expectation that they should have known across all the Old Testament was that a divine Son was coming greater than Adam, greater than Israel, greater than David, all of whom were portrayed as God's Son to point to, prophetically point to, the true Son, Jesus. Is your helmet still on? Are you still wearing a seatbelt? But all this begs the question underneath all other questions. Okay, so he's not saying that they're becoming, they become divine. They're not multiple deities or just another deity. He's making this argument. But the question underneath all other questions is this. Point number two. What does it mean that Jesus and the Father are one? Look back up with me at verse 30. We saw in the previous point, Isaiah 43, 5. I am the Lord, there is no other, besides me there is no God. There is one and only one God. There is no other, there is no rival. You look at John 10, and you look at verse 30, and when you study the grammar of the New Testament, John is one of the most simplistic writers. I don't know if you've ever known this before, but books can be written, and then they're assigned a grade level of what level of uh, reading comprehension you need to understand. John is the lowest reading level in the Bible. He writes very simply. And you look as he quotes Jesus here in verse 30, these short few words, I and the Father are one. This brings to conclusion when he's talking about who his sheep are and sheep aren't and eternal life and trusting in Jesus and the good shepherd laying down his life for the sheep and more. I and the Father are one. And for saying that, they pick up stones to kill him. The words are simple. You read it in the morning. You think that they taste good. You like the way they fit together. It sounds neat. And we move on, but we can't move on. We have to move deeper into what does that mean? What are the implications of what he says? I and the Father are one. Later, look down at verse 37. Listen to this thing that he says. In verse 37, Jesus says, If I am not doing the works of my Father then do not believe me. That phrase, the works of my Father, if you pause for a moment, all that we've read up to John 10 is that Jesus perfectly performs the will of God on the one hand, and here in verse 37, it's the works of his Father, meaning that the Father is also performing the works through the Son. 
don't know if ever you pause on that verse to think about what it says. Okay, let, let's keep going. What are the, and then look at verse 38. The end of verse 38. Again, that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. Okay, you're, you're sitting down for coffee with a friend, a young brand new believer, and they say, hey, I was reading John 10. Jesus says, I and the Father are one. He does the works of the Father and the Father's in him and he's in the Father. Can you explain to me what that means? For the next hour, can you tell me what that means? It has been established in verse 33 that Jews are charging Jesus with blasphemy because you, being a man, make yourself God. So when 1030 says, I and the Father are one, it's the closing context of this passage demonstrating the perfect unison of will between the Father and the Son. Jesus is claiming to be God. We've just seen the previous point, there aren't any other gods. What is going on here? When Jesus says, I and the Father are one, or when Jesus says that he does the works of the Father, what Jesus is indicating is that there's not two different wills. Like you and a friend decide that we're going to go out to lunch after church and so you get in the same car and your wills have aligned for a few moments because you want to go eat the same bacon cheeseburger. No, what this is saying is that there is one will in God expressed in the Father and Son. The same can be said of their activity. Again, in verse 37, Jesus is doing the works of the Father, not because, the God, not because God the Father gave him an assignment and his will agreed with the Father's will and he went to do that. There is only one will in God. Jesus' actions reveal the unison of God's will. And it's not that there's two people headed in the same direction and they're both in the car. It's the Father acting through the Son. There is oneness of will and action. Not separate but aligned wills. Not, and not separate but aligned actions. It's one will, one plan, one unified act. Okay. I know that's technical, but you need to think about what Jesus is saying. I and the Father are one. There's more. Do you see that word One. You see it in your Bible? I and the Father are one. Right? That's written in Greek. Greek has masculine form, feminine form, and neuter form. And so when you speak in Greek or Hebrew, similar, they have to match forms. In verse 30, the word one, I and the Father are one, is neuter form. We can't see this in English. It's neuter rather than masculine. I and the Father are both masculine. It would, uh, it would, you would expect the words to match. They don't. Why does that matter? Because if Jesus was using the masculine form of one, Jesus would be saying that he and the Father are the same person without distinction. This is the ancient heresy of modalism which wrongly taught that God is one person and that he changed his mode of existence depending upon the need of the time. So in the Old Testament, he was kind of the angry father God. In the Gospels, he's gentle Jesus God. And then in the New Testament, or the epistles and beyond, he's 
the Spirit of God. He just morphed or changed his form. So he is, in this case, there's, it would be the heresy of modalism, if it was masculine form. But instead, instead it's neuter, which means that there is oneness with distinction. Oneness with distinction. Pause for a moment. That helmet is rattling. Your seatbelt is starting to get loose. But listen, this is lost in English. But this is what Jesus is speaking to the, his followers. It's what he is communicating to the religious leaders. And it's what he's communicating to us. You must know this. Because here's where we're going. God is Trinity. He is one God in three persons. Not one God in one person. To disbelieve the Trinity is to not be saved and to not be a Christian. Christianity is Trinitarian. This is loss on us in English and therefore we must know what this says because the question is, have you believed rightly? So you, you'll see more about this. So you, feminine form, neuter form. I know that's not the most exciting thing to hear, but it was exciting for the religious leaders wasn't it? What did they do in response to Jesus saying, I and the Father are one? It was exciting to them. They picked up stones to assassinate him and kill him. But we read it and go, oh, that's nice. And we just keep reading. Let's see why, how, how nice this is. So if Jesus and the Father were the exact same person, that would contradict what we've already read in John chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. Listen. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God and the Word was God. Not a God, like the Jehovah's Witness wrongly mistranslated. That's false. He was God. Verse 2, He was in the beginning with God. So what that means then, because Jesus says this to the religious leaders, I and the Father are one, and because the word one is neuter and not masculine, that means that Jesus is telling them that he is one with God. He's making himself out to be God in the flesh, but with distinction. With distinction. Let's keep going. Jesus has a lot to say about the Spirit when we get to verses or chapters 14 through 17. But we're going to talk about him now as well. What we're seeing Jesus teach right here in John 10 is that God is one God, but this one God exists in three persons. Because we're adding the Holy Spirit in. We are seeing the orthodox doctrine of the Trinity. Search high and low, you don't find the word Trinity in your Bible. And you know what? That's okay and that's a good thing. Do you know why? Because false teachers, wolves, false convict, um, converts or false convicts and heretics use the Bible to distort the Bible, to confuse the Bible, right? Remember what Satan does? He uses the Bible to tell lies. That's what heretics do. So our grandfathers and grandmothers in the faith fought fights for us to guard the gospel once for all delivered to the saints. And they got together. It was a big family meeting and wrote down to clarify 
what was false and what was true. And we call those creeds. And they are beautiful and right. And not necessarily all of them, the early church creeds, which we'll talk about in a moment. We sang one earlier, a version of it. So there is in God, one God in three persons. And verse 30 teaches that. Technically one God in two persons. One God, the Father and the Son are one, but with distinction. You should pause and just spend the rest of your life thinking about that. There is one will in God, one united purpose in God, one plan in God, and one action in God. So what Jesus is communicating for which they want to kill him is that the Father is God and that he is God. And the Spirit is God. But not three gods, one God. The Father is not the Son or the Spirit. That's what verse 30 is when we begin to ask, okay, what does that mean? This is what it means. The Father is not the Son or the Spirit. The Son is not the Spirit or the Father. And the Spirit is not the Father or the Son. But He is one God in three persons. And look at the end of verse 38. Jesus says that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. Question, do you know and understand that? What does that actually mean? When Jesus says that the Father is in him and that uh, he is in the Father, Jesus is teaching explicitly mutual indwelling. Does that clear it up for you? You know, at the beginning, I asked that question about who and what we are. The loftiest and most magnificent thing that we could ever fill our minds with is the study of God himself. If he is the fountainhead of all of life, he is not a created being. He is the eternally existent, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. He is the one in whose presence is the fullness of joy, from whose right hand flow pleasures forevermore. He is the one who, God is love. There is no more important, lofty, or mysterious mind-boggling reality that you can fill your mind with in thinking about who God is in himself and what he is as the being. He is the one of whom nothing greater can be conceived. He is the great one. And Jesus, because God is other, Jesus is God in the flesh, the person of his son, is here beginning to reveal to us who God is. So when he says, I'm in the Father and the Father's in me, Jesus is teaching a mutual indwelling. He's saying something about what it means that God is one God in three person. The Father indwells the Son. The Son indwells the Father. The same can be said of the Spirit. Each person of the Godhead, to use an old word, is in the other two. And... The others are in each one. 
the Latin would use the term, what we would say, circulation. And if you've ever looked at the drawn symbols of a trinity, um, where you have this three-point infinity loop, where the lines cross over one another, that's how the church in the past has sought to depict in an, with, a, with a drawing what does it look like for one God and three persons to mutually indwell one another. Now again, there's a mind shaft. We're going down seatbelts and helmets. Jesus said, I and the Father are one. You, you pause, you stop, and you say, what does this actually mean? And what are the implications? Jesus says, I'm in the Father and the Father's in me. He's saying something so that we would know and understand. That's what the beginning of verse 38 is. It is our responsibility to go deep into these things and understand. One theologian notes, as he thinks about this circulation idea, which all analogies break down, one theologian notes, at the risk of putting this in physical terms, all three persons of the Trinity occupy the same space. In other words, we cannot see God without seeing all three persons at once. So the oneness of the Trinity from verse 30, I and the Father are one. And the mutual indwelling of the Trinity in verse 38, I want to teach you the the word for this, just because it's a really amazing word. Perichoresis. I don't know how to spell it. I know how to spell it. Perichoresis. I just want to give you your money's worth this morning so you can walk away and while you're having tea and crumpets after church, look at someone and say, what do you think about perichoresis? Perichoresis speaks of the oneness and threeness of God simultaneously, one God and three persons That circulation idea, all analogies break down and fall short. They're all imperfect. But because Jesus says he and the Father and the Spirit are one, but with distinction, this means that each person of the Trinity is in full possession of the divine essence, the one divine essence, one God in three persons. Uh, We've actually heard this before in a previous sermon in this series, but Augustine said, each are in each. All are in each, each in all, all are one. You know, they were smart back in the day. And one other reality of the Trinity from John 10, the centerpiece of John 10, is is that Jesus is the Son of God made flesh. He is speaking these mysterious realities of what it means that God is God, one God and three persons that just make our minds short circuit. And yet here he is, the second person, become flesh to be the good shepherd so that he could lay down his life for the sheep. The man Jesus, when Jesus became flesh, Jesus was not adopted as God's son, thereby becoming God. That's the ancient heresy of adoptionism that didn't happen nor was there a point at some time in the past at which god the father created the son that is the ancient and still very well alive heresy of arianism which is made alive and promoted by modern day jehovah's witness jesus is the eternal 
Son of God. Eternally begotten Son of God is the language we take from the Bible. From eternity to eternity, the Trinity has been and will be Father, Son, and Spirit. That makes sense? So here is how our grandfathers in the faith, in the face of the Arian heresy that Jesus is a created being, a lesser God, they gather together in 325 and then again in the year 381 to write down a clarifying statement on the gospel for all Christians of all places of all times to believe. And here's what they said, the beginning of the Nicene Creed. I believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth and of all things visible and invisible. And here's how our grandfathers sought to pass down to us this accurate understanding. They say in the next stanza, And I believe in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of the Father before all worlds, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father by whom all things were made. Or, we've heard this before and we're going to hear it again, the Athanasian Creed. From about 100 years later, somewhere in the mid-400s, listen to how this statement of orthodoxy to explain and summarize the Bible's teaching, especially John 10. Whoever desires to be saved, the creed begins, should above all hold to the Catholic faith. (gasps) Now, I know you heard the C word. Don't worry, it's lowercase c. Catholic simply means universal. It does not mean Roman Catholic Church because it didn't exist, contrary to what they say, until many centuries later. Whoever desires to be saved should hold above all the universal faith, Anyone who does not keep it whole and unbroken will doubtless perish eternally. Can you see them drawing a line in the theological sand of what you are supposed to believe in order to be saved? That is, elements central to the gospel can't be tinkered with, nor negotiated, nor denied, nor distorted. They say in verse 3 of the Athanasian Creed, This is the universal faith, Catholic faith, that we worship one God in Trinity and the Trinity in unity, neither confounding, confusing the persons nor dividing the essence for the person of the father is a distinct person. The person of the son is another and that of the Holy Spirit still another, but the divinity of the father, son and Holy Spirit is one, the glory equal, the majesty co-eternal. Such as the Father is, such is the Son, such is the Spirit. The Father is uncreated. The Son is uncreated. The Holy Spirit is uncreated. The Father is immeasurable. The Son is immeasurable. The Holy Spirit is immeasurable. The Father is eternal. The Son is eternal. The Holy Spirit is eternal. Yet there are not three eternal beings. There is but one eternal being. So too, there are not three uncreated or immeasurable beings, but there is but one uncreated and immeasurable being. Similarly, 
The Father is almighty. The Son is almighty. The Holy Spirit is almighty. Yet there are not three almighty beings. There is but one almighty being. Thus the Father is God. The Son is God. The Holy Spirit is God. Yet there are not three gods. There is but one God. Thus the Father is Lord. The Son is Lord. The Holy Spirit is Lord. Yet there are not three lords. There is but one Lord. Just as Christian truth compels us to confess. Each person individually, as both God and Lord, so universal religion forbids us, Christian religion forbids us to say that there are three gods or three lords. The Father was neither made nor created nor begotten from anyone. The Son was neither made nor created. He was begotten from the Father alone. The Holy Spirit was neither made nor created nor begotten. He proceeds from the Father and the Son. Accordingly, there is one Father, not three fathers. There is one Son, not three sons. There is one Holy Spirit, not three Holy Spirits. None in this Trinity is before or after. None is greater or smaller. In their entirety, the three persons are co-eternal and co-equal with each other. So in everything, as was said earlier, the unity in Trinity, Trinity in unity, is to be worshipped. Anyone then who desires to be saved should think thus about the Trinity. Amen is right. This was our great-grandfathers in the faith who sat down together to clarify what heretics were saying by twisting the Bible and misusing the Bible to say things the Bible didn't say. And so our grandfathers sat down to pass down to us this guardrail of understanding what does it mean to be Christian. When Jesus became man, God became man, the incarnation and lived in our place, went up on that cross, carried our sins in our place, when he defeated and killed death and rose from the grave, appeared to many, then ascended into heaven and sat down at the right hand of the throne of the Father, It's this God who did that. The gospel itself, what I just relayed to you, the gospel itself, the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, depends upon the Trinity. And only one God in three persons can provide the gospel. There is no other. And for God to say that God is love necessarily requires God being one God in three persons for eternity. No other so-called God of the world, of the world's religions, can say that eternally that God, that it is love, because love requires an object, so to speak, and within God himself, he can be love in his Trinitarianness. Let's come out of the mine shaft. You can take your helmet off. But Jesus said to us, I and the Father are one. With distinction. Jesus said to us, the Father is in him, and he is in the Father. And later he'll talk about the Spirit the same. And what does that mean? It means these things and more. And friends, this is called orthodoxy. This is what we are to believe in order to be saved. Because to change these truths is to invent a new God. And remember, fake Jesuses can't save. Because fake Jesuses give false gospels. So these are the implications 
of those simple, easy to say and memorize words, I and the Father are one. And what I hope you walk away as you're thinking about perichoresis is that this is not ivory tower speculation. This is drawing the truths and implications from John 10 and elsewhere. This is the expectation of what all Christians are to know, articulate, and believe. So let me admonish you. Do not be an ignorant or lazy Trinitarian. It's one of the most assumed realities of God in the last 150 years, largely because of the rise of the Enlightenment thinking, and there's nothing... Well, they think that the Trinity is nonsense, therefore throw it out. You can do that, but you also throw out your salvation. So then, what is the right response and a glorious epitaph? Our final and very brief point. So what's the response of the people? The religious leaders hear this Trinitarian doctrine and want to kill Jesus. How does Jesus respond or how do the people respond? Verse 40. He went away, Jesus went away again across the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing at first. There he remained. Many came to Jesus and they said, John the Baptist did no sign, but everything that John said about this man was true and many believed in him there. So these people who followed and listened to Jesus, they saw his signs, they heard his words, Rather than wanting to pick up rocks to kill Jesus for his words, they filled their hands with worship and they believed. They understood and they believed. And they believed and they appealed to John the Baptist. John didn't do any signs. But man, everything that this man said about Jesus was true. Jesus is the good shepherd who's lays his life down for his sheep. It is this mysterious and magnificent God who in the person of his son has worked the work of the gospel to give you salvation, to provide for you in Jesus Christ the glorious love of God. He is the good shepherd who lays down his life. The gospel of the Trinity is what makes Christianity Christian. No Christianity, excuse me, no Trinity, no Christianity, no gospel, no salvation. Anything else is not Christian and cannot save, as I said a few moments ago. But here's the reality. We worship and serve a mysterious, magnificent, and amazing triune God. And He wants you to know Him... As Father, Son, and Spirit, where the Son is the Good Shepherd who has come down to rescue you from your sins against Him. And rather than this good, beautiful, perfect, and righteous, clean God of being revolted by or revulsed by your sin, He has moved towards you in your sin and suffering to rescue you and to atone for your sin through the blood of the Son. That's what he's like. Verse 42 says, Many believed in Jesus. And so I ask you, do you believe in the triune God who has given us the gospel of his son, both life, death, resurrection, and ascension? Do you believe? 
You know, D.A. Carson, again, I mentioned him earlier, he remarks in his commentary that what is said of John is a good and noble epitaph. And I wonder if you want it said of you. You can insert your name into verse 41. Scott did no sign, but everything that Scott said about Jesus was true. Or Jamie, or Angel, or Tom, Randall. I'm just going to start going through everyone's names. You insert your name. The conclusion of this mysterious magnificence is that you are to believe and to proclaim the excellencies of this God who called us out of darkness and into his marvelous light so that people can say about you, yeah, they didn't do any miracles, but everything they said about Jesus was true. And friends, that includes the doctrine of the Trinity. You may not do any signs other than living an ordinary life, following and helping others know and follow Jesus. But may it be said of you, may it be said of this pulpit, may it be said of this church family, everything we said about Jesus was true. Amen? Lord, you're true. Lord, we believe. Help our unbelief. Lord, we understand. We don't understand. Lord, you are mysterious, and yet you have come down to us. And Jesus, you have spoken to us to reveal to us the doctrine of one God in three persons. So help us believe. Help us understand. Let us rejoice with joy inexpressible at the glory of a magnificent God who has shed his blood for us in the person of his Son, so that when we repent and believe, we can be saved. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, friends, uh, please stand. We're going to sing a song. This is a song, time for you to reflect on how this...